If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn over to Psalm number 42. We're going to be in Psalm number 42 and 43 this morning because most folks believe they were actually originally one psalm. I think you'll see that when we read through it. They're tied together in a lot of ways, but especially by this chorus that gets repeated several times. So go ahead and flip over to Psalm 42. We're going to do Psalm 42 and 43 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, if, especially if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. We have uh, Bibles provided at the center of each aisle that are there just for that purpose. And we pray each week that God will bring people to us who don't own a Bible, don't know anything about it. And, and if you're here this morning, you're the answer to our prayer. And we'd love for you to take that and, and use it. We'd also love to talk to you about what you read there. That would be our pleasure to do that. Uh, we are going to be in Psalm 42 and 43 this morning, continuing a series through the Psalms that we started a couple of months ago. And this morning we come to a psalm that, and this is not a scientific conclusion that I've reached based on any kind of statistical analysis, but I'm pretty sure this is one of the most beloved psalms in the whole collection. The reason it's one of the most beloved psalms in the whole collection is that it expresses truth about an experience that most everyone has known at some point or another. And if you haven't known it for yourself yet, you will. It, ex- it expresses the experience of God's absence. One of the things that we've said about the Psalms all along is that they're one, of the, one of the main reasons they're so useful to us is that they help model for us what it looks like to relate to a God that we can't see. What does it look like to have a relationship with a God who's described to us in the Bible, a God whose word we have, but a God who we can't relate to quite in the same way that we relate to our friends here or to families or to people that we work with. So this, think of this psalm as pointing us towards what it looks like to relate to God when you don't sense his presence in your life. You guys know, surely you know by now, that we are in the path of totality. Tomorrow afternoon at approximately 1.27, we will experience a total eclipse of the sun. I don't know that much about eclipses. I don't remember ever paying attention to them. I've certainly never worn any of those glasses that I now have. So I've been sort of educating myself over the last month or so since I realized this was happening. Before I realized that I could probably pay for my children's college with one weekend's worth of Airbnb in my home. Uh, One of the things I've been thinking about as I've learned more and more about what this eclipse will mean is is what it must have been like in the ancient world to have experienced something like this. I mean, just imagine, even just a few hundred years ago, much less like 4,000 years ago, that you're just out in the fields, working your normal day job, and all of a sudden shade but not normal shade you look up at the sun that you've just assumed for all of your life you've never imagined it not being there and there's some sort of absence there imagine what it would feel like to, for, for the totality for those small percentages of the world's population who've ever experienced that when it completely goes away when you were completely unprepared for it what would you think wouldn't it wouldn't it actually make you wonder Am I ever going to see the sun again? Is, is it coming back? Is this the new normal? Wouldn't it make you question what you even know? 
If you can't depend on the sun to shine in the middle of the day, what can you know? What can you depend on? I think if I'd had more foresight, I would have named this sermon Total Eclipse. Because I, I believe that's exactly the sort of experience the psalmist is describing in the psalm that I'm about to read for you. He's experiencing something that has completely disoriented him. Something he assumed as the source and center of his life is hidden from him now. And he doesn't know which way to turn. And he doesn't know how long it should last. He doesn't know what he knows and doesn't know. He's completely disoriented. And I think as we read through his experience, you're going to recognize your own And that's why I'm so grateful for the chance we have this morning to point you towards the model that this psalm gives us for how to respond when you can't see God. What do you do when God seems absent? We're going to follow David's steps this morning, three steps that he lays out for us in this psalm. I want to begin by reading the whole thing, Psalm 42 and 43 together, and I'm going to ask you now to stand in honor of God's word while I read. This is the word of the Lord to you this morning. As the deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where's your God? These things I remember as I poured out my soul. How I would go to, with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a, a multitude of us keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where's your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. 
Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is God's word. You can be seated. The psalm I've just read to you guys is a psalm known as a psalm of lament. It's the most common kind of psalm. There's more of those than any other type of psalm in the whole collection. And what psalms of lament try to do are express honest feelings, honest emotions, honest troubles to God on the front side of God's deliverance. Some psalms praise God for delivering, for hearing prayer. The psalm of lament happens as kind of a prequel. It's a prayer that you offer before you've seen God deliver in the hope that he will deliver, expressing honestly what you are going through and asking for him to be your rock. And this kind of psalm of lament, some of them, last week we looked at at Psalm 51 where the psalmist is lamenting his own sin and confessing it to God. Uh, Later, in just a few weeks, we'll do a a psalm of lament that laments the enemies of God's people and how prosperous they are and why do they seem to have it so good when we have it so hard. This psalm of lament is a psalm of lament that focuses on God, lamenting God, how God has treated the psalmist what he has or has not yet done for the psalmist. It's one of the most disorienting kinds of laments because because without God, the psalmist knows he has nothing. So if he can't depend on him, where can he turn? On whom can he depend? What we've read this morning points us to three steps to take, I believe. Three things you should do when God seems absent. Three things that the psalmist is doing that he sets us up to, to emulate. So let's start with the first one. The first thing you should do, the first step to take when God seems absent in your life is to be honest about what you feel. That's the first four verses of Psalm 42. They're brutally honest. They are vivid in what they describe. Let me just walk you through a couple of these examples so you can make sure, so so, so that you understand them. I I want you to try to connect your own experience to what the psalmist describes here. In the first two verses, he gives us one of, an unforgettable image for his longing. The image of a deer. Think of a deer maybe that's, that's been running hard. That's maybe been fleeing some sort, of, some sort of predator. Running hard, not able to stop until he can't go on any further. Looking everywhere for some source of, of, of water, of sustenance, of refreshment. F- panting after a stream. And that's what the psalmist feels in his own soul. In this moment, you can almost hear him stretching after something that can communicate what he feels because he, his, his language is just running out. He can't just tell you, you know, I'm missing something here. It doesn't communicate it. it, it he, he, needs, he needs to rely on language of, of, of a deeply physical craving. It's the only thing he can find in his experience that gets close to what he's experiencing now. A physical craving for water when you have none. He's craving to know that God is real. He thirsts for the living God, a God that's actually alive. He's craving enjoyment of him, like you enjoy a close friend or a family member. 
And he feels this craving because God's presence feels as distant to him as a, as a stream to a wanderer in the desert. You know what it is to be thirsty, don't you? On Friday, I made the bad mistake of taking a jog to the park with two of my children in a double stroller at midday. It, I think the heat index was at least 120, something like 95% humidity. Meanwhile, I'm pushing a double jogging stroller up a hill, several hills, by the way. It was awful. Uh, I had to call my wife to come and get me, actually. Once I got to the park, I did not run home. Uh, I just, but I remember, I mean, having this psalm on my mind, getting to that park, throwing the brake on the double, collapsing into the, into the bench, not even unstrapping my children, <laughs> grabbing the water bottle that I brought and drinking it down to the bottom. I was thirsty. Have you felt that kind of thirst, that kind of deeply physical craving for access to God? That's what the psalmist is experiencing. He's longing for his presence. When do I come and appear before him? And so far... He has no answer. Verse 3 says, it, My tears have been my food day and night. He's longing for a stream that is God and His presence to satisfy His craving with the nearness of God. But all He's got are tears. All He can live on are His memories of a time that was different than now, a time that was sweeter. He's living in the past, longing to go back. And that sets up the haunting image of verse 4, something that surely all of us have experienced at some level. He's remembering back. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. What does he remember? I used to go with the crowd. I used to lead them. We went together all the way to God's house to enjoy God's presence. I know what it feels like. To have God near. But now all I feel is the presence of an absence. Like an amputee who has an itch where his limb used to be. That's all I've got. There's a striking line in Dante's Inferno. Life brings no greater grief than happiness remembered in a time of sorrow. Memory of happiness in a time of sorrow. That's what this psalmist is stuck with now, while his tears are his only food. And to make it worse, to pour salt in the wounds, he's thinking about those throngs who go happy into God's presence, getting exactly what they want, experiencing what now he can only faintly remember, but doesn't have for himself. He sees people worshiping and all it reminds him of is what he doesn't have anymore. Have you been there? It's deeply isolating to watch other people experience something you want to experience but can't. And this psalmist is brutally honest about it. The first thing that he models for us the first thing you should do when God seems absent in your life is be honest. Don't bottle it up. Don't try to pretend it's different from what it is. Don't be afraid of what others will think. Be honest with yourself. 
Be honest with others and be honest with God about what you feel. Express it. Do your best to put words to it. Find images for it like this man did. And be honest. And friends, just as a side note before we move to the second, pray with me, with with all of us, that God will make our community a community in which people can be honest about feeling this way and not be shamed for it. A community in which we won't be put, put back by the awkwardness of not knowing what to say. Where we won't be dwarfed by our inability to fix it when we want to so badly. Where we can just be open to give and to receive this sort of clarity about where we are. That's the place it has to start. Otherwise, we're building just false religion. But it doesn't stop there. What should I do when God seems absent? Well, first be honest about what you feel, but the next thing the psalmist does is he talks to God about what he wants. That's what you should do. When God seems absent to you, start with that absence. Start with what you know you want because you don't have it and pray that to God. That's what the psalmist does. He's not just venting here. He's talking to God. He's bringing God into his experience. Yes, he feels alone. Yes, he even feels rejected, but he's not settled there. He wants more. And he tells God directly what he wants. One of the uh, most useful and influential books on pastoral ministry ever written in English. It was written several hundred years ago called The Reformed Pastor by a guy named Richard Baxter from England. And he has all this great advice for how to guide people through all sorts of different spiritual experiences and at one place in the book he talks about how to help someone who either because they don't know how to engage God or because God is very distant from them in that moment to how to where to start where do you even begin with someone who's struggling in that way and Baxter's advice is this persuade them to study their own wants and to get their hearts affected with them if you can't feel anything positive for God at least get to where you're feeling what you don't have. Start somewhere that's true. Go all the way back to what is a bedrock that you know you can't doubt. I don't have God, but I want him. Begin there. So let me show you where the psalmist does this. So, so from, from the beginning in, in verse 6 of Psalm 42 and carrying all the way through verse 3 of Psalm 43, he's talking to God about the things that he wants. In the first, few, he's, he, the first few of those verses, he's talking to God about how badly he wants answers. The first, things he want, first thing he wants is, is, is answers for what's going on in his life. He's stuck in this quandary. Verse 6, he's trying to remind himself of things that he knows about God. He remembers him from sweeter times when he was in God's land close to God's place. He knows the stories he's been told about God's faithfulness to God's people. So he has that over here, but, but then over here, he also feels rejected by God. He knows that the roar of the waterfalls that are drowning him right now have come to him from God. He says, all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. So imagine yourself at the beach, swimming in the waves. You know, sometimes those waves are big. Imagine it on a red flag day and you get out a little too far and they're, they're starting to come fast and hard. You know what that feels like to be just crushed down by them one after another after another. As soon as you stand up, another one to hit you. 
That's what he feels. He's drowning. And he believes and knows because of what God's word has told him about God, that God's the one who sent the waves. So he doesn't know how to make sense of this. He's living in this tension and he wants answers. That's why he says in verse, so in verse eight, he's reminding himself of God's love. In verse seven, he knows these breakers crushing him come from God. So in verse nine, he asks him a question, still calling him his rock. His only hope that he's got is God. But, but, but why have you forgotten me? Why am I the one who's mourning instead of the enemy that you promised to protect me from? He wants answers. What he knows about God, what he's been told and what he's experienced himself doesn't match up with what he's experiencing now. He just can't reconcile it in his mind. Friends, everybody that, everybody that is resents hard things in life. All of us do. But there is a special anguish that belongs to the believer. The book of Job is all about this. See, the problem for a believer in the God of the Bible is that we can't chalk up hard things to blind chance. We can't write off oppression as merely survival of the fittest, the way the world works. For the believer, God is always involved. He's always behind what we experience. And the believer can't help but wonder what God is doing. And the believer who's been public about their belief has to put up with the taunts of those who see it and don't believe and say, where's your God? (laughs) What, you believe in God and this is what you get from him? They have to feel the weight of having no answer for that question. I don't know where God is right now in this. I think this psalm is showing us, friends, that it is not wrong to ask God for answers. It's modeled here. It's modeled throughout the psalms, throughout the whole Bible. It is not an accusation against him. And in fact, at least in the way this psalmist models, it's a form of worship. Because in asking these questions, in laying himself out before God, he is telling God something about God. You are it. You are my rock, my only hope. Apart from you, I have nothing. He's saying, I miss you. When I tell my wife that I miss her, it's a form of worship of her. There's an absence I can't tolerate. He's worshiping God through his questions and you're invited to do the same. Don't hold back. Ask him. Ask him for answers. The psalmist also wants help and you should too. So moving from here down into verse one of Psalm 43, he specifically asks God for what he wants. God to do for him in this situation. Vindicate me. Here I am standing up under these taunts. People are asking me, where's your God in all this? And I don't know what to say to them. And there's only one thing I can hope for, that you will show up and show them you're real. Deliver me. Punish them. Give us justice. That's what he prays as he sits under the thumb of a deceitful and unjust enemy. That might not be the prayer that you need to make this morning based on what you're experiencing, but his model is here for you to use. Take the specific thing that you want and bring it to God. If not to your father, who would you tell? 
If not to your maker, who could you look to? And God is honored and never bothered when his children bring him in on what they're facing. The psalmist doesn't couch his prayer. He doesn't put in any kind of caveat. He doesn't say, if this, or maybe if you could find your way clear then, or if it be your will. He just prays it. And God is honored by that prayer. What does the psalmist want? Well, he wants answers. You should too. Ask for them. He wants help. Specific help. You should too. So so ask God for that. And then finally, he wants a new perspective. The last thing he asks for comes out in verse 3 of Psalm 43. He's just prayed, again, brutally honest prayer to God. Why have you rejected me? But he doesn't pray that as a stiff arm to God. He actually expects that God may have an answer. So in verse 3, he doesn't, he doesn't see this question as an accusation and a conversation killer. It is an open, genuine, sincere invitation to God to speak back to him. He's ready to listen. He says, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. I want to be with you. I don't know where, where you are or why I'm not with you now. I want to be with you. So, so, so lead me there. Send your truth. Send your light. Help me to see what I don't see right now. He's not holding God in contempt. He recognizes that the God who feels distant, the same God by whom he feels rejected, is also the only hope that he has. So he asks God to change him. Not just to change his circumstances, but to change him. To change what he sees. He recognizes the problem. By faith, he is claiming that the problem here is not God, but my perception of God. So send out your light, your truth. Let them lead me to my only joy. He recognizes, in other words, that there's a gap between what he knows and what he feels in his desperate circumstances. He believes that God is love. He believes that God is powerful and wise. He believes that God is always for his people and never leaves them. He believes that, but he can't see that. Not where he is, not right now. He prays to God to bridge the gap between what he sees and knows in his mind and what he's been told and what he feels in these circumstances. Because what he wants above all is God's presence. This is him humbling himself before God. He wants God's presence more than he wants to be right. He's not looking to catch God in some sort of mistake. He wants God's presence above understanding why God has done the things that God has done. He's not demanding that as much as he'd like to know. He wants God's presence more than a vindication on his terms, even though he's just asked for that. What he wants most of all is God's presence, even if that means breaking down his own sense of what is. And being led directly there by God's truth. So that's what he prays. And you should too. When God feels absent, be honest with him. Ask him for answers. Ask him for help. But ultimately, ask him for new perspective. Even when the answers don't come. For light and truth that will lead you to him. 
There's one last thing that this psalm points us to before we're finished this morning. One last thing to do when, you, when God seems absent from your life. This psalm just points us there and Jesus helps us to see it. The last thing you should do is talk to your soul about Jesus. Did you notice as we were reading through that there's this one chorus that comes up several times? It's one reason people are sure that these two psalms belong together. Somehow along the way they got separated out, but they were written to be part of one song. There's one title that goes over all of them, and this same chorus comes up in each one. You get a few verses. The first one's just honest expression of what he feels. Then you get the chorus. You get a few verses explaining to God what he wants. Then you get the chorus. And this chorus, which is exactly the same each time it comes up, is the psalmist modeling for us what it looks like to talk back to ourselves. Listen, verse 5 of chapter 42, Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Then he goes back to, why have you forgotten me? Why am I mourning? Why do the enemies get to just mock me and say, where's your God? And then he talks to himself again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, I'll again praise him. Then he goes back to his prayer for vindication, a prayer for light and for truth. And then he talks back to his soul again. In the meantime, while he waits, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I will again praise him. Here the psalmist is modeling what we do while we wait. Because the answers we ask for, the help that we ask for, even the new perspective that we ask for may not come when we ask for them. So what do we do when our prayers feel like shouting to the sky? When we feel like there's no one there to answer them. What do we do then while we wait? We talk back to ourselves. In amongst this honest self-description and these honest prayers to God for help and healing and perspective, the psalmist talks back to himself. What we see here, I think, is that the psalmist doesn't take his feelings as a given. He's honest about them. He's not trying to hide his feelings. We're not talking about suppression here, but, but the psalmist also isn't enslaved to them. Why are you cast down? We know why he's cast down. He's got good reason to be down. His life is out of control and way off the rails that he would have wanted for himself. Why are you in turmoil within me, he asks his soul. Well, you, you know what he's talking about, don't you? I do. The churning in yourself. When things are hard, one of my main responses is this sort of turmoil. This ongoing inner tension. This almost like a negative thought loop. These, this playlist of negativity and details on repeat that just goes over and over. Churning and churning deeper and deeper into the mess. It feels awful. And it's isolating because no one else can go there with us, not, not fully. But the psalmist doesn't take these feelings as a given. He's not content to just let them be. Look, it's not repression over here. 
He's not suppressing things. He's not pretending that he doesn't feel what he feels. He's being honest about them. But he also doesn't believe that he has to continue feeling the way that he does. He speaks to himself. He reminds himself of what he believes to be true. He reminds himself to hope in God. Please notice these these two ways of dealing with feelings uh, that we often we often get into these ruts where we talk about feelings as either something that people suppress and usually in our day and age that's something that we're down on we don't want to do that don't suppress your feelings in other in other periods that's what they needed to hear stop suppressing your your feelings it's not helpful for you it's not helpful for the people around you but, but, but it seems like the only other category that we have at least in, in most of the talk that, that i'm experiencing and things that i'm reading is is just like an unfettered unbridled and almost enslavement to your feelings where your feelings are what they are where there's no ground to stand on in, in interrogating them and working with them and rerouting them. There's this huge middle ground, though, for being honest about what we feel and not taking it for granted, not assuming that it has to stay the way that it is. And that's the ground the psalmist is on and calling us to. We don't have to stuff them in or let them run wild. They must be acknowledged, that's for sure, but they are not static. They are not ultimate. They are not who we are. The psalmist is modeling us the importance of talking back to our soul, but, but, but friends, the last thing I want to say to encourage you is to make sure that you notice what we should talk to our soul about. What do you talk to your soul about when God feels absent? The content matters. The psalmist just points us to hope. Hope in God. I will again praise him. He had good reason to hope. He would have been taught Israel's history. He would have known what God had done, how he'd shown up in power when Israel had no other hope in Egypt. He had good reason to hope in God, and he was leveraging it for all that he could. But we have far more than the history that he had or the prophets that he may have read more than just the promises that God would not be angry forever or that a deliverer would come. We have more. He calls his soul back to hope. That we should do. But we should call ourselves to remember something much more specific. Did you notice that in verse 3 of Psalm 43, it's almost like the psalmist thinks of light and truth as a person. He personifies them. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me like a person who takes a child by a hand and guides them through something busy or complicated who makes sure they don't lose their way. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me, he says. If you have a Bible, flip over to John chapter 1. I like to think of John chapter 1 as God's answer to the psalmist's prayer. Remember those words. He prays for light. He prays for truth. And in John 1, verse 4, John writes, In him, Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, what the psalmist longed for is available to you now in Jesus. He cried out to God for light and truth, and that is what God sent in His Son. When God feels absent to you now, I am encouraging you to follow the psalmist's example, but to add a new twist. What you tell your soul when God feels absent to you is this. No matter what I feel right now, the word has already become flesh and he dwells among us. He is not absent. He has made his home with men. When God feels absent to you, when your inner adversary cries out, where's your God? You talk back to your feelings and you remember Hebrews 7 and you know right now my God made flesh is interceding for me. He lives to pray for me. And even when I don't see him or feel him myself, his prayers go on and on and on that his father and mine will give me exactly what I need. And when your soul wonders, why should I hope in God? Why should I praise him? Why should I trust him? Don't tell your soul that the hard things in your life right now, God would have prevented if he could have, but he couldn't. That may give you a quick hit of comfort, but it won't last. It wears off. You tell your soul, yes, the Bible says that these waves that crash on me came from his hand. The Bible doesn't tell me why he's done this to me. But the Bible tells me that this same hand that has brought these breakers that crash over my head right now sent his only begotten son, beloved above all else, to die for me. And whatever he's doing with these waves is motivated by the same love that gave up his son. Friends, what do you do when God feels absent? You talk to your soul about Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need in these times to remember, to follow the example set by the psalmist. And to speak truth from your word into our own hearts. I pray too that you would make our community one that is willing and ready to do this work together. That you would help us to remind each other when it's hard for each one of us to remember. (laughs) That when we're struggling to remember or when God feels absent, you would help us to have the, the courage to ask others to tell us the truth. And that through whatever comes in our lives as individuals or as a church, you would keep us pressing after you. We only ask that you will not leave us alone. We have no hope, no rock but you. Help us to remember Jesus and to trust in him, we pray in his name. Amen.